Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hey, boys, it's turkey season. Coming up pretty quick here, guys. My wife scrounged up an old turkey article. This one's going way back. Doesn't even list in here what magazine it was. I'm thinking it was Sporting Classics magazine. And this hunt probably took place, oh, boy, early 90s? Hmm. I'm not sure, guys, but I remember it was a great hunt in Montana in the Short Pines. New area for me, got invited by a fishing guide friend of mine from Alaska, Dave Eggdorf, called and said, hey, I've always wanted to try turkey hunting, and I think I could guide for them around here, but I don't know anything about it. Would you mind coming over and hunting with me and showing me how? Twist my arm, Dave. <laughs> so, yeah, I asked if I could bring a buddy along, and he said yes. So I brought my good buddy, Alan Sands, along. We loaded up the truck and headed for Montana. And this is the story that resulted. Last Stand Gobblers, story and photography by Ron Spomer. I know that guy. Given the option, I'll bet George Armstrong Custer would have chosen to ride with us rather than the 7th Cavalry at the Little Bighorn. True, the 7th met with a bit more excitement, but not much. Alan Sands, Dave Egdorf, and I were in the tracks of Custer last May. We were crawling through southeast Montana grass, sage, and pine needles while surrounded by our adversaries. Five whooping gobblers, their faces painted red and blue, their war bonnets spread, commanded the high ground from perches in ponderosa pines on low ridges from which they could look out over miles of rolling range. We were sneaking toward two of them as the sun rushed toward the horizon. Within minutes, it would be light enough for the birds to spot us. Quick, crawl for those pines at the base of that there hump of ground, I commanded my men. If we can set up in time twixt these two closest birds, we might sucker them both in. Outnumbered or not, we'll give them what fur. <laughs> Alan and Dave looked at me, rolled their eyes, and shook their heads. I ignored their insolence. I know when I'm having fun. Sands, belly out thar and stick up that hen decoy. Then sit again that there pine tree and don't twitch until you can count the hairs on their chests. Eggdorf, slide your butt down there and get your back again that other pine and don't shoot until Sands fires. To their credit, the men performed perfectly and without complaint. Within minutes, we were settled and the woods were quiet, save for the warbling sounds of mountain blurbirds and the bombastic yodeling of those turkey gobblers. White spider lilies lifted their delicate faces to the cold prairie air, and dark blue larkspurs stretched and yawned in the pale dawn. It was hard to imagine a battle might soon shatter this idyllic scene. 
We had crawled beyond the range of three gobblers, now sounding insignificant behind us. But a hundred and fifty yards to our left, Tom was war-whooping like a fool, and with every third or fourth gobble, he'd inspire a bird some one hundred yards to our right, just over the crest of the ridge on which we hunkered. I mimicked the soft clucking of a walking hen with my diaphragm collar to let both birds know we were in the neighborhood. They went nuts. I let them boil for a few minutes and then cool to a simmer before I teased them again with a firm yelp. That did it. They were hot and ready to attack. A black blur glided down from the left. No sight or no word from the tom on our right. I hoped he wasn't sneaking over the ridge to outflank us. Our best chance was to have both birds attack upslope from our front. Suddenly, one gobbler sashayed between the dark ponderosa trunks a hundred yards in front of us, fanning his big tail side to side, obviously trying to lure us into exposing our position. Well, we weren't falling for it. This was our ambush, and the Tom was supposed to make the mistakes. I teased him with a series of yelps. He responded with a lusty gobble and more flagrant parading, exposing himself dangerously. Still, we sat tight. Then the second Tom darted up to the first and joined his tail-fanning display. Double temptation. No way, boys, I thought to myself. You're coming to us. I laid a sexy yelp on the brisk morning air, and that convinced them. Both birds turned toward our ambush and began to promenade. Strut, pirouette, drum. At sixty yards, they climbed out of a low saddle saw the decoy, and tipped over their beards in their rush to reach it. Side to side, they rocked like boxcars on bad track, charging Sands and Eggdorf, who sat frozen against their pines. We were suffering this attack because of Dave. A veteran fishing and upland bird hunting guide in Montana, Dave wanted to expand his operation to encompass Miriam's turkeys, which were becoming increasingly common on the private ranches where he hunted. However, since he'd never before pursued turkeys, he enlisted my assistance. Would you show me how to call turkeys if I took you to a ranch that's crawling with them? He asked the previous winter. Well, that was tantamount to inviting an alcoholic to a wine-tasting party. Nevertheless, I maintained my composure and drove a hard bargain. Throw in some of that great trout fishing you have on the Bighorn River there, and I might be able to make it. Can I bring along a friend to share the driving? Done. Having hunted the nearby Black Hills and Plains of South Dakota in previous years, I felt fairly confident tackling Montana turkeys. Maybe not as confident as Custer felt taking on the Sioux and the Northern Cheyenne, but I was sure of myself nonetheless. Southeast Montana's turkey habitat is similar to Northwest South Dakota's. Pine ridges, grassy hills, scattered sage, and a few alfalfa and wheat fields in the bottoms. I expected to find gobblers roosting on the pine ridges but I didn't expect to find them so quickly or in such numbers. There's one. There's another. And there. And there and there, I exclaimed. Dave parked his truck in the sage, and we rolled down the windows that first morning on our hunt. Five gobblers? It was incredible. Dave just smiled as if to say, I told you so. But we had no time for amazement. Dawn was nigh, so we grabbed our gear and trotted toward the nearest toms. Within 15 minutes, we were set up. 
Well, when those two gobblers raced up to our hand decoy, none of us twitched. I was impressed that Alan and Dave, raw recruits in these turkey wars, were cool enough to sit and watch the show. The gobblers were going to have their way with that decoy, and we would watch it all from 20 yards. But in one smooth motion, Alan suddenly raised his gun and fired, dropping the nearest Tom instantly. The second bird leaped 15 feet into the air as if launched, landed on the downhill side of both the decoy and his fallen comrade, and ran right into Dave and his big 10-gauge browning. Just that quickly, the fight was over. We turned and looked at one another. We looked at the gobblers. Dave gave a thumbs up. The sun had yet to break the horizon, and we had two mature toms in the bag. Custer would have loved such a setup, but he was so intent on glory that he, not his quarry, bumbled into the ambush. Instead of believing his crow scouts, and instead of believing his own eyes, instead of assessing his situation and proceeding with caution, vainglorious Custer charged across the greasy grass, the Indian's name for the Little Bighorn River, and into the largest camp of Sioux and Cheyenne ever assembled on the high plains. What ensued was a great victory for Native Americans, an embarrassment, an embarrassing defeat for the U.S. cavalry, and annihilation of Custer's command. More than 200 soldiers were killed. Undoubtedly, Custer would have preferred hunting turkeys that fateful day, but he never had that option. There were no turkeys in southeast Montana in 1876. Bison, mule deer, pronghorn, elk, sage-grouse, sharptails, and jackrabbits, yes, but the nearest turkeys were no closer than southern Colorado. Today, transplanted Miriam turkeys roam the pine ridges and sage grasslands of southeast Montana, and George Custer is a tourist attraction on the bluffs above the muddy little river where he made his famous last stand. Actually, Custer may have been dead before his last stand. Some historians now suspect he was shot at the river during his initial charge. And that necessitated the somewhat confused retreat of his men, dragging the dead or dying Custer as they went. Small white headstones mark where each man fell. A connect-the-dots trail tracing the desperate struggle for high ground. There, on Last Stand Hill huddled a cluster of graves and the tall monument marking the site of Custer's defeat. Ironically, this site of the Sioux and Cheyenne's greatest victory over the treaty-breaking encroaching whites now belongs to the Crow Nation, traditional enemies of the Sioux. Crow scouts led Custer to the Little Bighorn encampment. They sided with the wrong team that day, but their investment eventually paid big dividends. There have been more than geopolitical changes on this land since 1876. In addition to introducing Miriam's turkeys, man has dammed the Bighorn River just a few miles west of the Custer Battle Site, creating one of the most productive tailwater fisheries in the country. The constantly cold, clear waters flowing from Yellow Tail Dam nurture an estimated 3,506 inch or larger brown trout and 2,000 similar sized rainbows for every stream mile. Huge browns were the norm 10 years ago, but ever since Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks stopped stocking the river, resident rainbows have been spawning and repopulating on their own. 
They seem better able than browns to forage on the tiny midges, mayflies, scuds, and caddisflies in those cold waters. Bows average 18 inches, while browns are smaller on average. There are still some 20 to 24-inch bows and browns in the river, but not nearly the number there were 10 years ago. Dave Egdorf has been fishing and guiding on the bighorn for years. After he and Alan killed their gobblers last May and I failed to catch up with one of my own, we hopped into Dave's drift boat for an afternoon on the river. We beached the craft and waited whenever we spotted a pod of rising fish. There's a rise, and there, bunches of them, Dave said as we rowed toward shore. Where, I asked from my secure casting position in the leg braces at the bow. I find it hard to get excited about fishing when I have a valid turkey tag in my pocket, but rising fish warmed me up. Just out from shore there, maybe 10 feet. See it? There. Oh, yeah, yeah, Alan said confidently, and then he began stripping out line. Okay, okay, now I see them, I think. After a long winter, I was having trouble isolating rise forms from the swirling current. They were subtle disturbances that were quickly masked by the moving water. Unfortunately, the currents weren't confusing enough to disguise my sloppy casting or my imperfect fly patterns. By the time I'd hooked and landed one 14-inch brown, Alan and Dave had played and released nearly a half a dozen. Yes, yes, I see it, I see it, I grumbled as Alan ceremoniously raised yet another big brown. Just remember who called in your turkey. The secret to success on the bighorn is size 18, 20, and sometimes even smaller flies tied to long, thin leaders, the type I least enjoy fishing. Additionally, one must match the hatch of the month, or the minute, generally with hook sizes that provide all the sport I need just trying to tie them onto a leader. Rather than subject myself to that frustration again and again, I experimented with egg patterns. Rainbows were spawning. And I tried muddler minnows and streamers on the theory that a real man, or fish, gets tired of hors d'oeuvres and he eventually tears into a steak. Apparently, there were no real fish in the bighorn that day, just the 12 to 18-inch wimps that Alan and Dave kept catching. I didn't care much. I'd really driven to Montana to hunt turkeys. A relaxing float on Montana's most productive trout river was merely killing time between morning and evening hunts. The following morning, Dave and Alan shared my frustrations as I tried to catch up with a moving gobbler. We slipped into an open glade on a flat bench just below the Tom's Ridgetop roost tree only moments after he'd abandoned it. But try as we might, we could not catch up with or get ahead of him. Then we heard another bird across a wide bottom and up a far hill, a distance we were judging too far. We backtracked toward a third gobbler we'd heard earlier. His lair was crossed with big tracks, but he must have seen us coming because no amount of yelping could elicit a response. A few more gobblers toyed with us, luring us on long runs and hikes up and down pine slopes across vast open pastures. Each time we arrived at the suspect's last known address, he'd already moved. Finally, we gave up and went fishing, this time floating the bighorn in my Mad River Explorer canoe, about as stable a casting platform as you'll find in a responsive, pleasant paddling canoe. Unfortunately, the craft could do nothing to improve my fish-catching talents. Dave was not along this time with his knowledge of bighorn patterns and techniques. Alan and I had to flounder through riffles and slicks, casting everything in our boxes to fish that rose repeatedly all around us. We could see tiny little mayflies popping to the surface and floating past, but neither of us had a pattern or a size to match. 
So, back to the turkeys. My idea was to roost at least two birds that night, camp in that field, and be in position well before dawn. Al and I drove out early. Dave would follow later. He could have saved himself the trip. While Alan and I dined on a sunny grassland ridge in late afternoon, we indistinctively heard a gobbler. Then another. Sounds like one over there, I pointed south. No, no, that came from over there, Alan nodded east. Well, now that one was definitely west. Yeah, there it is again. We discussed splitting up to roost different gobblers. But the bird to the west of us became so persistent in his yodeling that I judged it worthy of immediate pursuit. There's plenty of daylight left. I think we can kill that bird. Let's try. And if he won't cooperate, you can still roost another bird to the south, okay? Alan agreed. We jogged across a half mile of pasture, scattering cattle. We feared the turkey would pop his periscope head above the ridge and spot us. We reached the pines and slipped among some brush just over the horizon. I, I, oh dear. I ran out of pages. <laughs> Sorry, folks. This is not complete. Oh, my goodness. Now what do I do? This article is not finished. I guess all I can do now is tell you the story as I remember it. So we had that bird to the west of us, gobbling like crazy, and we moved as close as we thought we would dare. And then we sat up. I remember calling soon after that catching movement, and he was coming up a little draw and steadily gobbling and coming a little bit closer every time. And this became a classic turkey battle with me calling and him gobbling. And, of course, the gobbler's trying to get me to come to him because that's the way it's supposed to work. But I'm not moving, obviously, or you'll see me. So I just sat there and teased him with some little purrs and yelps and the usual turkey calling stuff. And the excitement was that big old gobbler out in that open prairie. Once he got out of that bottom where the thick brush was and on the side hill, he was in full display. And he was like a, that big medicine ball, dark turkey that we see when they're all puffed up with his tail fan rocking from side to side as he sashayed closer and closer and closer and closer. That nerve racking right out in the open. You can't blink or move an eyelash because that gobbler's seeing you because you're just sitting there against a tree. And here he came. Oh, my heart was up in my throat on this one. But I, Alan and I both were just absolute statues frozen there against that tree until that gobbler got inside at 30 yards, turned a pirouette so that his feathers were blocking his head. He couldn't see me. I raised my shotgun. When he turned around, I went, he stuck his periscope head up when I got him. So we got our gobbler instead of roosting him. I don't usually call gobblers late in the afternoon like that. This one was a special treat. And of course, we were hunting near Custer's last stand. We were probably within 40, 50 miles of it. We drove right past it on our way out to the ranch where we were hunting. So it was pretty similar terrain, although there were no pine trees up on the ridge where Custer's last stand was. If you have never seen this, it's just east and south of Billings. You take the Interstate 90 and you go down to Hardin, and uh, then you're pretty close. It's just a little bit south of Hardin is Custer's Last Stand. And, of course, it's a national monument, and you go in, and they've got a displays in the museum, and it tells the whole story. But the, I think the most dramatic thing for most folks is to stand up on that ridge where was the the pillar they have erected as the site of where the bodies were found, the last stand bodies of all the soldiers of Custer's command. 
But down that slope, when you look toward the river, you will see all the white headstones that marked where each man was found, the ones who didn't make it up to the top where they were dug in. And it wasn't much of a defensive position. They, they had the top of a small ridge and they dug up some breastworks and whatnot, but they were just surrounded and outnumbered. You know, they say there were something like 10,000 Native Americans in this huge camp down on the river. Uh, but of course, not that many of them were warriors, but there were a heck of a lot more warriors than there were in Custer's command. And, uh, and other uh, Sioux and Cheyenne had the other troops pinned down or engaged in battle further to the south. Um, ben Teen, I believe, was down there and somebody else. But uh, it was just a fiasco as far as Custer and his men were concerned. They were just made the foolish move of instead of waiting for the others, he wanted, I think, uh, to get all the glory. So he'd charge down to the river thinking that he would rout the camp. Uh, and he had missed a lot of teepees in those cottonwood trees down in the bottom, I think. So... That's where we were hunting, and that's made it extra special. So they still have a lot of good turkey hunting in that country. If you can find an outfitter, I don't know if Dave is still at it. Uh, I've lost touch with Mr. Eggdorf. He used to have a fishing operation there as well as one in Alaska. Had a lot of good fishing adventures with him over the years, but this little turkey hunt was really special. I'd like to do that again, calling two turkeys on the same tr on the first try at the same time for both of my friends. That was pretty pretty sweet. And then to pick one up a couple of days later in the afternoon, just about what you would call a perfect turkey hunt, and all happened in glorious big sky country of Montana. Highly recommend it. Hey, this is Ron Spomer. I really appreciate you folks listening to our podcast. If you want to catch some of our more detailed YouTube videos on guns and ammo and ballistics and all that fun stuff, Ron Spomer Outdoors on YouTube. You can catch us. Our website is ronspomeroutdoors.com. And on there, you can find rsotv.com. Join that up to see some of our longer videos and more detailed reporting on different rifles and shotguns we've enjoyed and hand loading and different things that we can't necessarily show on these public channels. This is Ron Spomer wishing you successful turkey hunting this spring and hunt honest and shoot straight. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.